Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month I am joined by Katie Smith, the Vice President of Ethics at Assurance. Over this four-part podcast series, we take a look at why a liberal arts degree and not a JD make a successful CECO, how today's compliance professional can help the next generation of compliance professionals going forward. In episode three, we take up the difficult question of when is it time to move on? And in our closing and final episode, episode four, we take a look at personal lessons from COVID-19 for compliance professionals. This is a fascinating series. You will learn a lot and enjoy it quite a bit. Katie is well known within the compliance profession, having been the CECO at Conversant before she moved over to Assurance. And she's got a lot of insights from her 20 years plus in the compliance profession. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another edition of the Compliance Life, where we take a look at uh, the journey to the CCO chair. Uh, Today, I have with me Katie Smith, the Vice President of Ethics at Assurance. Uh, Katie, uh, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Tom, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, Katie, um, one of the reasons I've wanted to do this with you for some time is, one, I feel like I've known you forever, but two, your journey to a CECO role is in many ways different than um, many people in the compliance function, primarily starting with the fact you're not a lawyer. So I was wondering if we got maybe could start out about uh, why you think having a liberal arts degree, not a JD, helped get you to where you are now. Yeah, so I actually think that my success in my career, which has my ethics and compliance career has spanned 20 years, actually 20 years this month. Um, and it's it's because of my liberal arts education. I went to a small private school, Monmouth College, go Scots, um, in the Midwest. And um, having that liberal arts education, I think really set me up for success in my future career. Um, the traits for success bolstered uh, were bolstered by my education. Um, as any liberal arts college or university, you know, a wide range of courses are, are taught, but they really focus on critical thinking, communication, creative problem solving, innovative research, and lifelong learning, which basically describes a successful SECO as well. Eddie, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, professional life after you graduated from college? Sure. Um, So 
when I when I first got out of school, I I actually got into the world of banking, um, but I got decided to um, change my ways after about three months into into the role. Um, I had within that short three month time frame. I had gotten exposed to chickenpox, got deathly ill, and I was held up twice, um, the second time with a sawed-off shotgun to my head, and I just decided banking wasn't my calling. <laughs> so I ended up in HR and worked for several years rot rotating around in different HR functions, and I thought I was going to make it my career, um, but then I accidentally tripped into the ethics and compliance space. Uh, a vice president um, that I work for in HR, um, we worked together at Compaq and he was tapped over to create Compaq's first ethics and compliance office. And one day he called me up and asked me to join his team to help him build their program. I was really happy in my flourishing HR career and didn't know anything about ethics and compliance because think about it, this was before Enron, Tyco, WorldCom. Um, so I said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks and, and good luck, let me know how it goes. But he called me back a few weeks later with a new deal and said, look, just come over for six months. I promise I'll have a, um, a HR find a spot for you after that time. Just, just come for, just come for a six month gig. Well, that was 20 years ago this month. So um, you go over for your six month temporary gig. Um, <laughs> what was your sort of first uh, series of, of job duties, but also what were your sort of first series of impressions about being in compliance? Well, um, my first few job duties in ethics and compliance um, were, I had to do a lot of, um, at that time, way back then, the team, one of the things that we did was internet filtering. So um, we had, our team was the one that that had to approve any website that an employee wanted to go to that had been blocked by the internet filtering software. Well, let me just say I got quite an education <laughs> in those first few months because there are things that I just can't unsee. Um, when you when you start uh, clicking down into uh, various links into a web page to see if it should be approved or not, there's some there's some really dark things on the web, um, but. Uh, most of my work started out more from a programmatic perspective. What could we do from a, a training and awareness perspective, employee engagement? Um, and, and so that was my focus was uh, drafting communications, um, PowerPoint decks for the elevator speech, um, and really trying to raise awareness within the company. Because again, this was a new function. So we were, we were starting from scratch. But at the time, there really weren't many ethics and compliance programs out there. So we were kind of learning as we went. Um, so it was, it was an interesting time to be in ethics and compliance. Katie, how did you feel like your uh, professional background in human resources uh, helped you initially when you moved over to the compliance function? I think it absolutely did. It gave me a different perspective on the dynamics between employees and their leaders and their management chain. And that that natural tension that can happen, especially when there's um, an, an conflict of interest or some kind of ethical decision that needs to be made within the business. Um, 
HR really comes from that space of compassion and, and building up employees and teams from an engagement perspective and, and building relationships. And those are all really critical for, uh, for a successful ethics and compliance program as well. So helping to understand, um, you know, how, how the business worked. One of the, one of the key, um, cornerstones of a successful HR program is having the HR folks embedded in the business so that they understand the, the business and, and so that they can, they can coach um, the managers um, on their business decisions and, and how, to, how to support their employees. So um, learning how to, to understand the intricacies of the different business units is another thing that I think set us set me up for success in um, in my ethics and compliance career because that's always been something that has been critical in um, understanding how the business works so that you can you can coach and um, influence the right ethical behavior within the organization. You have to be able to talk their language. And I think HR does a good job of, of learning how to do that. Katie, as uh, you progressed through the compliance profession, uh, did you see uh, an evolution in corporate compliance programs, uh, starting with sort of where you started with PowerPoint slide decks and elevator speeches to more mature and sophisticated uh. compliance programs? Absolutely. I think we've seen, um, we've, we've kind of grown up in this space. Um, you know, I think most programs when we started 20 years ago, were really more of a paper, paper program. We had a checklist that we went by the, the federal sentencing guidelines and, and we had, you know, we made sure that we could, we could tick all the boxes. And what I have seen is, is this maturity in, not only in the field, but in our programs. So we have uh, now CECOs come from all walks of life. Um, some are business leaders, some are, are ones that have actually grown up in the ethics and compliance space. Some are still those that are voluntold and are coming from other, other parts of the business and then they're learning as they go. But because the programs are much more advanced, um, I think, when a new SECO steps in, they're able to um, take up that mantle and move on. And what I've seen is how we've been able to utilize technology and data um, to really transform programs from being truly reactive to proactive. Um, the fact that I, I can count on um, at least a couple of hands programs that I know that have uh, data uh, scientists on their on their staff now, and you didn't see that 20 years ago. And um, so th the fact that we're able to utilize the technology and be able to spot emerging trends um, to work with the business to to really become we're not overhead, we're actually supporting the business in a completely different way. And I think that is one of the, the major improvements in, in the last, especially the last five years. Katie, have you seen an evolution and, and or maturity in the way the business, uh, corporate leaders, senior executives, and even boards of directors think about a SECO and the compliance function as well? 
I've definitely seen a change, especially in the last probably three or four years, where board members are asking really good questions. They're asking the, the tough questions of um, the SECO and their program um, from a you know, demonstrate effectiveness, you know, what's, what's really happening and, and what, what matters to the company. Um, so the fact that those, those conversations are now happening um, helps to continue to raise the bar for our programs. Um, I'm seeing much more astute, le- uh, not only um, board members, but also senior leaders that, that have come from other organizations and, and understand uh, the need for uh, for and the value of ethics and compliance. And so it's a different conversation. They know that it can be something that helps them. It's not the shop that says no anymore. And um, so I've I've really seen seen a change in the, the dynamics and the relationship between ethics and compliance and senior leaders as well as the board. Katie, why do you see uh, not having a law degree or not having a JD as really um, one of the uh, perhaps key tools of a successful CECO? Or if perhaps if I could flip it around the other way, uh, not not all uh, CECOs are lawyers, and you're certainly not. Um, but uh, what does that difference in perspective bring to you in that CECO chair? Well, at the end of the day, someone that has their law degree, they've been they've been classically trained to think a certain way, and and that education process is fantastic. Um, I had planned on going to law school. I actually, I had actually gotten accepted and was was going to go. Um, and this was even before ethics and compliance was was on my radar. Um, I had always wanted to go to law school. Um, I decided to defer it. Um, because um, Compaq was being acquired by HP, and I wanted to see how that integration dust settled. And I ended up um, waiting and and deferred my seat, and then Enron happened, and I lived in Houston at the time. So every person that had been displaced by Enron went back to either to law school or to get their MBA, and um, the school accidentally gave my seat away. So, um, but everything happens for a reason. I had thought about going, uh, going, um, but then I got into the ethics and compliance career and I realized that not having a law degree was actually something to my advantage. Um, lawyers, um, especially if they have practiced law, um, there's, there's this natural tension with lawyers um, and ethics and compliance because at the end of the day, their role is to protect the company. Whereas someone that is not a lawyer and that's in the CECO role can really step back and be um, look at it from a true independent perspective of you know, what's the right thing to do because something can be legal but not be ethical and not be the right thing to do. And I know I know a ton of very successful um, lawyers that are secos and some some are really good at it and at wearing both hats. Um, but I think it's it's something that that they have to they really have to work through. Um, I think there's a I think it depends upon the the organization that you're in too. 
and the risk profile of that industry. I think there are some that having that, that law degree really um, makes the, the CECO more successful and in someone that doesn't have one, it would be a little, little more challenging. But um, I've been very fortunate in my career path that the opportunities where I've had the opportunity to be a chief ethics and compliance officer, um, I didn't. I did not have to have a JD in order to be successful. Katie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I look forward uh, to continuing the conversation. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I have Katie back for another episode on her journey to the CCO role and sitting in the CCO chair. I'm very excited about another special podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network, where I'm joined by Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, where we take a deep dive into the Wirecard case. We're up to 10 episodes. Check it out on the FCPA Compliance Report and Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.